Good day and welcome to the ExoSmart uh, podcast or, or videocast. Uh, today we're quite excited to have a very, very special guest, um, Mr. South Africa 2017, who I'm quite happy to say is also a fellow biokineticist and, um, and, and, and colleague, Habib Nurbai. Welcome, Habib. Donovan, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So um, Habib is going to be part of our faculty on ExoSmart, so keep an eye out for some interesting presentations on his thoughts um, and some of the research that he's uh, going to be doing. So keep an eye on um, for that. Um, I thought, you know, it will be great to just chat to Habib with everybody in lockdown, um, just to kind of um, showcase some of his achievements as a fellow biokineticist uh, and also a cricket enthusiast uh, like, my, like myself. Um, so, Habib, maybe if you can tell some of our, um, you know, audiences uh, on how you got into studying uh, sports science uh, and more especially biokinetics. Well, I certainly love cricket from a very young age. I uh, started playing cricket at the age of six and uh, right up to the um, elite level. And didn't make the franchise or provincial level because I sustained a back injury when I was 17. And at that time, we didn't have a lot of knowledge into the mechanisms of injury, specifically lower back pain among adolescents. And uh, I then realized my love for, 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 for sport, not just cricket. I was an avid follower of other sporting codes. And I decided that I wanted to be in a profession where I understood what it was like to go through that rehabilitation process. And I want to do the same thing. And initially, I wanted to actually do physiotherapy. But then later on, when I was in grade 11 matric, I got to find out about the profession of biokinetics. So I decided to rather go into the field of sports sciences. And at that time, it was a three-year degree and you'd have had to apply for your honors in biokinetics. So to, to cut one long story short, that is uh, the background into how I got into sports sciences. Um, till today, I'm still an avid uh, follower and, and lover for, for cricket. And uh, But that is the brief... Um, synopsis of in terms of how I got into the field of sports science. Excellent. And um, so I believe you also have um, 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 a humanitarian project or some community initiative. You can just tell our listeners about that as well. So even when I was growing up, we, I used to be part with a number of community engagement projects or different types of charity projects growing up and even into my university years where I was even chairperson of a student society. We used to do a lot of community outreach projects at the University of Johannesburg. And uh, when I moved to Cape Town, when I started my internship, I never had that same drive in others. And I know that it's quite different. And I think a lot of people know that that drive is and that energy is quite different between those in Johannesburg versus those in Cape Town on the coast. So I decided, hey, let me just start my own nonprofit organization, which is called the Humanitarians, which is still in existence till today. And uh, the Humanitarians is a, volunt a voluntary-based organization where we provide different types of projects and programs within the areas of sport, health, and education. And one of, the, one of the most important things that I wanted for this program is the aspects of sustainability and the aspects of impact. And I want to understand how we could measure that. How do we know if we're making a difference? And if we're not making a difference, what can we do better? And one of the ways of how we could do that was through research. So we integrated a number of our projects in research, uh, a number of projects and programs with our research. And we actually written a number of papers on that as well. So till today, we still do a number of hampers. Um, we, uh, we, don't really have, it's, uh, we don't really have any set particular setting or group that we work with. 
we do a needs analysis. Whoever is in need for a particular aspect, we will try our best to formulate certain projects around there. Right now, we're doing a partner project with Gift of the Givers and Penny Appeal South Africa on providing food relief hampers during the current COVID-19 pandemic. But I must say that in the last two or three years, a lot of our projects has been more on a silent basis. So a lot of people think that we've stopped. We've actually not. We've actually still carrying on because we realized that when you want to give to someone in return, when you want to uh, help a beneficiary who is in need, a lot of people think that you're actually helping them. And what I realize and what our team realized is that when you help someone in need, when you witness a positive transformation in their life, it is actually creating a positive sense of fulfillment within you because you have witnessed a positive difference in someone else's life. And that's how rewarding humanitarianism is. And that's why we felt that whatever you give with your right hand, your left hand must know. And that's why we started to stop promoting a lot of the stuff we were doing on social media because the aim was not to increase the brand of the humanitarians. It wasn't to increase what we were doing, but rather about making a difference on a silent basis. So the balance of when to post on social media, when not to post on social media, took a bit of um, a dip because we wanted to do it on a silent basis. And so our projects are still continuing and uh, have a huge passion within the communities, really passionate about it. And um, often they're not, people are even asking me to come and speak on different types of community engagement aspects within society and how South Africa can really thrive on the basis of humanitarianism because we hear so much about capitalism and imperialism and the likes, but not much of the essence of giving without getting anything in return. I think it's these kind of projects is, is at these times that we're seeing, you know, with, with COVID and lockdown and the economic climate, it's, it's, you, know, you can't have, you know, there's, there's, there's so much more that, that that's more of these projects that are, that, that are needed. Excellent. So that leads me on to my next question, which I think a lot of our fellow biocriticists and, and maybe a lot of, of our female um, audiences will want to know on your experience on entering Vista South Africa <laughs> and then eventually getting the crown and some of the initiatives and things that you did in, in, your, in your reign. Thanks, Donovan. I think that's a very good follow-up question because the, my humanitarian work was the precedent for why I entered the Mr. South Africa competition. It was to use that platform to do more for the community. And when I entered Mr. South Africa, I had no background into pageants or modeling experience or anything like that. In fact, it was actually suggested by a few friends that, why don't you try it out? And I actually uh, responded and said that, I don't think it's me, but after quite some time of doing my research on it, I entered. And to cut one long story short, before I knew it, I was in the top 20. And I realized that I could go find this competition if I spend more time and a lot more effort into it and just maintain who I am and not try to be someone that I'm not. That I'm not. And uh, I think I realized that this competition wasn't looking for the conventional male model who had a six foot height and different types of attributes um, um, in terms of a brawn type of male. I think they were really looking for that type of guy who was going to be a role model to society. And I said, if that's the kind of guy they're looking for, then I'm going to try to be the best version of myself and really use the basis of humanitarianism within this platform and to show people that you don't have to be a model to make a difference. You just need to be an ordinary person. I also want to show in conjunction with Robin Sharma's book that you don't need a, a title to lead. You know, so I had no expectations of winning the title and the unexpected happened when I won the title. And, you know, this was, I won the title in the end of 2016 and that year of Mrs. Africa was in 2017. And a large part of that year was spent on doing a number of community engagement projects using our 
humanitarians organization and we worked in a number of of, of communities in within the western cape because i was at the time based within the western cape having worked at the university of cape town and but we also did a number of projects around the country as well i mean i drove 5000 kilometers to raise funds for cancer that was a really successful project we also were able to distribute 50,000 books to um, libraries who needed resources and who were unresourced. So we distributed 50,000 books around the country in terms of um, those who needed uh, literacy or had literacy challenges and needed more books. Um, so there was a number of projects that I was able to get involved in. It was really a rewarding experience. And um, I think the one thing that I can take from that experience was the, the people that I got to know, the networks that I had formed during that year. It was, I think we realized that the true treasure in our life are people. It's not about money. It's not about the, you know, the silver linings and all of those kinds of things. It's really about people and how you reach out to people. And I'm so thankful today that I was able to be given that experience. Um, I think I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy that a lot of people still call me Habib today and not just Mr. Essay, because for me, it was just a title. And it was that small chapter of my life. And I was happy to use that title to evoke uh, some change and difference into many people out there. And the current Mr. South Africa now is a very good friend of mine, Heinrich Gabler. Um, he's also an athlete. And um, he, uh, he and myself have formed another NPO called Upcycle, which is to give back to um, rural areas and underprivileged settings who require sports equipment or sporting aid. And uh, he has followed on that uh, kind of wavelength that I have left off and he's now doing even a more remarkable job than I did. So I think that is the, the premise of what a Mr. South Africa is, is that we need to change. I even gave a TEDx talk on this in Pretoria on breaking pageant stereotypes of how we need to break the mold of what a conventional model is, whether it's a female model or a male model. We can't usually say that it's only about conventional beauty of how you model on a ramp, but it's more about what you do after that night that you win, you know? So I really hope that by setting that example or by being that example, that it will allow a lot more youngsters and a lot more young boys to be that role model to, in society that many people need. Great, and you know, as you said, it's not just the title, but I think the title gives you the platform, as you said. Um, it's the same, you know, that I'm doing with these, these podcasts and, 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 and videocasts is to educate the general public, um, our peers, um, the referral sources, um, you know, athletes on the benefits of exercise, exercise science, sports medicine. Um, and, and given all of these, you know, health issues that are around the world, it's, 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 it's needed. And, um, and especially in, in areas that don't have you know, access to, um, um, you know, facilities and things like that, what can they do just to keep healthy and fit, even if they don't have access to, to equipment, you know? Um, so these are the type of platforms that we can use to, to, get, to, to get the word out there. Um, and then that leads me into the book, which you launched in PE a few years ago. Um, and I mentioned PE because that was my second home. Um, but did the book come before, before the pageant or was it after? Yeah, so the book came after the pageant. It was actually a journal entry that I was keeping because I knew this was only one year. You have to make the most of this time. It's not going to come again. So I, I formulated a journal and a few people had said, you know, why don't you share your story? Because it's very different to many of the conventional winners before you who, you know, entered Mrs. South Africa because of either their modeling experience or because they really wanted to win. So the, the title of the book is called Heart. It was published towards the end of my year as Mr. South Africa. And um, it, was, uh, it was launched in, in Cape Town um, in November before it even got to PE in early 2018. 
And um, thankfully, my mentor, Prof. Tim Noakes, was very kind to write a forward for the book. And he was also the guest speaker on the evening at the launch. So it was very, I was very grateful to have him on because he has impacted my life and my professional life uh, considerably. But the book speaks about um, giving from the heart and uh, living from the heart and humanitarianism in itself. Um, part of the book is a brief background into my life, but a large part of the book is written in a philosophical manner with regards to humanitarianism and how we can live our life based on different types of charitable aspects. And a lot of people don't even know that a smile is a form of charity. And uh, a lot of people don't even understand the concept of toxic charity, that if I give someone money on the side of the road, that is actually regarded as toxic charity because what is he or her going to do tomorrow? So the essence of sustainability of giving them something. So if you have an idea or a model that you want trademark or patent, don't keep it to yourself. Give it to someone else who can use it. Let them make a living off for themselves and a business of themselves. And you'll know that you have made a sustainable difference in that person's life. And the book usually, largely talks about that. You know, a lot of, a lot of people want to change the world. What we don't realize is that if you can help one person, you can change the world for that one person. And that is a considerable difference. That is a remarkable difference that you can do because then it will wave on like, it like a brush fire and it will just spread. So that's the premise of what the book was about. And it was published straight after the Mr. South Africa year. Excellent. So for those that don't have it or haven't read it, uh, look out for it. It's called Heart. That's correct. And it's available on Amazon and Kindle as well as a PDF copy. Excellent. Excellent. So coming back to you, and I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be biased here being, being a biokineticist and uh, I'm going to be repeating this quite often, which I do to my patients. We have a Mr. South Africa that's a biokineticist. Uh, <laughs> I want to get back into the profession of, 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 of biokinetics. You know, where do you see, um, you know, the, um, and being, being a, a, a lecturer at the University of Johannesburg, um, where do you see the, the, the profession currently um, both in, in terms of, you know, in South Africa and, and, and maybe, you know, globally? I think it has its positives and negatives. I think if I start off with the positives in the context where we're having a lot of more biokinetic students graduating, and I think that the awareness of the profession is increasing despite some stagnancy that we may notice in some areas. So that is a plus and that is really a positive. The negatives that I feel is that we have Dr. Google and the likes of many online information that patients are seeing where they're now starting to question, do they really need a biokinetics? And off the cuff, we were discussing, is biokinetics even an essential healthcare worker? And, you know, through these podcasts that you're creating, we hopefully will be able to inculcate more awareness to many people that biokinetics can actually be an essential worker. So, I think in the context right now where we live, where we're living in with the fourth industrial revolution, and I say FOIR because the University of Johannesburg has a massive mandate with regards to FOIR and how you can integrate technological advancements and innovation within different areas of, of, of fraternities and disciplines. More specifically, we've got a mandate from, from a biokinetics perspective of what kind of innovations can we put out there, not just for students for adequate learning, but especially for patients for enhanced rehabilitation and enhanced patient outcomes. What kind of innovations can we put out there that is an align to the 4R mandate that can help people, that can help students, but can also enhance the biokinetics profession? So I think although there's, there's a number of challenges that we foresee within the profession, just like any other profession, I think there are also opportunities that we need to grab and then that we need to see. 
and um, that will hopefully mitigate the challenges that we see in terms of stagnancy or in terms of the veracity of the biokinetics profession. I think there's a lot that we still can do, uh, both as students, as if there's still interns in some universities and as biokineticists and even those who are experienced biokineticists, there is so much that we can still do to contribute to the profession. And a very simple stat is that physiotherapy started in South Africa in 1946 and biokinetics came in in the early 1980s, 1983. So they have a 37 year lead in terms of where we are. So I know a handful of physios who I can work very well with, and I know a handful of physios who don't really, you know, and vice versa, where buyers and physios may not get along. And I don't think we're gonna get into that discussion right now. But I think if we can work together and have that collaborative pursuit of holistic rehabilitation for the purpose of patient well-being and not necessarily business optimization, I think we can definitely do well in conjunction with the integration of technology and innovation in rehab. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, um, myself in my, in my, my current personal capacity in my, in my, my biokinetics clinic, I work you know, quite closely with physios and, and, and um, I've never had any, any, any issues. But the reason for my question is that I see it as, and again, I might be biased, but given the health issues that we're currently having, and this is pre-COVID, you know, um, you know, TB, you know, um, all, all the primary health issues. I think biokinetics can definitely play, play a role to assist using the innovations and the, you know, the, um, the fourth industrial revolution, getting out into the communities and engaging on, 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 the, on the use of exercise and uh, on, on preventing and managing, you know, some of these um, diseases. So I, I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I, I, I think we don't have enough at the moment. Although there's quite a few graduating, we, we, we're still not in, in the public sector. I'm hoping that we're going to get there soon. Um, I, I, I don't think we have enough to cater for the need that's out there. Um, but I do think there needs to be a better understanding of our role, both in, uh, with regards to our doctors and the general public there. And how do we fit in, into the interdisciplinary team rather than the multidisciplinary team and working in, 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 in silos? Um, so, yep. you know, being, being at the, you know, moving from University of um, what's it, Cape Town Technology to, to, to UJ and things like that, my next question is, where do you see the current, um, let's call it sports science syllabus, right, um, that's, that's currently offered at the various universities in South Africa? And I asked the same question to Dr. Naidu, who was at UKZN. Um, how do you see the current offerings at our sport, with regards to our sports science degree? And do they meet the requirements for the job specs that's currently out there in South Africa, but more especially um, you know, internationally? Yeah, I, I think that uh, to, to simply answer the question, it would probably be no. Uh, but the, the, the challenge with this um, area that we have right now is that the education that we provide the students is, is adequate but it can't be to up to a higher standard because of limitations in infrastructure and facilities. Now, when you go to other countries, I went to Qatar in September last year and I visited Aspita and Aspire. It's chalk and cheese. You go to ACSM in America, very different. You go to the Australian Institute of, of Sport in Canberra, very different. So it's, it's, it would be, I think, not unreasonable, but a little bit unfair to compare South Africa where it is right now to other countries in terms of what facilities or resources they have. South Africa have got exceptional academics and experts in the field of sports sciences and exercise sciences. In fact, they are, a lot of them are world renowned whenever they go internationally. 
And I was privileged to have done my internship in biokinetics at the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, which at the time, and probably still is, is the gold standard for biokinetics internship. And there's many other biokinetics centers right now who are now meeting that kind of standard of knowing being that gold standard for biokinetics internship. So if, if someone is wanting to do sports science and if they want experiential learning and if they go to places like the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, or the HPC at Tux University, not that I'm promoting them, they are gonna get a very good experiential learning or what we know, what we call will, work integrated learning for that profession. So my answer to the question is that we have a lack of those kinds of facilities in South Africa. We have the capacity in terms of personnel, we have the, the research, we have the resources, but we don't have the infrastructure and facilities where we can offer that to a lot of the sports science students. I mean, sports science is broad. I mean, if a student wants to study sports and then later go on into biokinetics, that's another area. If they want to go into advanced sports science even further, and now CrossFit is a big name as well, that's another area. But I think what's an, also a very important thing is that if they want to go into sports science for performance enhancement of athletes or to enhance performance for athletes, if we can increase our infrastructure and improve our facilities, we can certainly offer that because we have the intellectual capacity to do so. If someone wants to go into sports science when it comes to chronic disease prevention, we have the capacity to do so. The issue that I'm seeing from a research perspective and from the number of conferences that I've attended locally and internationally is that nutrition is not taking a premise when it comes to chronic disease prevention. So while exercise has a certain role that it plays very importantly within chronic disease rehabilitation, we realize that it's now between 60 to 7% that nutrition plays a role with regards to chronic disease. Physical inactivity has been shown to be the fourth leading risk factor for all-cause mortality. Nutrition is right up there. It's even higher. So I think integrating more nutrition in the sports science syllabus is something that I'd want. But then it comes to the consensus from a South African perspective is that are we stepping on the toes of dietetics or nutritionists? Are we stepping on the toes in terms of malpractice for, for the HPCSA? Because you would know in practice, Donovan, how many patients have you had who has come to you as a biokinetist to say, what can I eat? What shouldn't I eat? How can I control this weight? Because I know it's affecting my knee or my ACL injury. And so we really need to integrate this consensus of nutrition in our practice, both as a biokineticist and as a sports scientist. And I think if we can do those kinds of changes from a disciplinary perspective, as well as from an infrastructure and facility perspective, then I think sports science has a desirable future. I, I, I agree. And, and, and uh, um, I don't think we'll be stepping on toes with the nutritionist or dietitian. I think it's, you know, to have a, a, a basic understanding of, of nutrition is and how it affects exercise and the physiology behind it. And, with regards to you know sugar intake, um, you know um, recovery, fatigue, those you know those, those kind of those kind of things. But the reason I asked, and I and I totally agree with you with regards to having the infrastructure to able to implement what you have learned. But my question was, is what we are learning sufficient enough to implement if we have the facilities? You know? Yeah, I, th I think there's some considerable improvements that is needed in our syllabus at universities. I think we need to go a bit, a bit, a bit high and above in terms of what we're doing. You'll be glad to know that at the University of Johannesburg, we will be starting with the first Bachelor of Sport and Exercise Sciences at the university. 
Um, so conversely, it used to be a BA in sports, a BSc in sports science, or it was a BA in sports psychology, and then you'd go into an honors in sports science. But we are offering uh, a Bachelor of Health Sciences in sport and exercise science professional degree that is starting next year. And Mr. Lombard and Dr. Andrew Green at UJ, I mean, Mr. Lombard, for those in Gauteng, he needs no introduction. He has been in the area of sports science for 35 years and or more. And so he has really been able to curriculate a syllabus now that is not just relatable to South Africa, but is also relatable to someone who wants to go overseas. We've, I know of, of, of my fellow graduates from 2010 who are now in Amsterdam and who are now in different parts of the world and they really appreciate the syllabus that they have had for honors in sports science at UJ. So I really also think that while it's important for us to improve the syllabus in sports science, I agree, I think that we also need to realize, and this is a message to students, and I continue to tell my, my students is that when you, are, when you get graduated with sports science or biokinetics, it's not a guaranteed job. It's not something that's gonna guarantee you a place in different areas in the market. It's like a passport. You've got to use it. It's what you make of it. It's how creative you are with it. Sports science and biokinetic, sports science mainly is so broad, you can go in any area. It really depends how you want to do it. I know we, try, we want to try and motivate them to go even beyond being a personal trainer. Some people who are having honors in sports science love personal training and they're making lots of money being a personal trainer. Others want to do even more. I mean, I think the goal for a lot of sports science students that I see is that they want to work with teams. They want to work with teams at the international level. And I've worked with cricket teams at international level, and I can tell them, while it seems all rosy to be working at that level, there's a considerable amount of accountability and responsibility that you need at that elite level. So I think students just need to think very carefully when, when what they want to do and what their passions are, uh, what, uh, how it's being aligned to what they want to do and what their interests are. It's what they make of it at the end of the day. But as we as educational practitioners, we certainly need to see how we can continuously improve our syllabus. In a, from a South African perspective, I agree that sports science isn't where it should be from a global perspective and a global standard. Okay, so for, for those that don't know, and I haven't mentioned before, besides being Mr. South Africa, is also, Habib is also Dr. Habib Nurbai. He's just... Um, recently completed his, his PhD. So maybe if you can tell our listeners about um, some of the research that you've done um, with regards to your PhD. My PhD was completed in 2017. It was more than three oh. years ago. I, I can't believe how time has gone. It feels like it was yesterday. But um, over the last six years, I mean, well, since I started my PhD, um, so they, we've had some interesting findings we looked at the batting backlift technique in cricket and i was fortunate to have tim notes as my supervisor because before bob hulmer had passed on um they always want to do study bradman's technique and in a bob hulmer and tim notes book the art and science of cricket there is a passage in the book which talks about the great debate around the backlift and this is always something that Bob and Tim wanted to investigate. But unfortunately, after his tragic demise in 2007, it was no longer possible. So Tim, in conjunction with a man called Tony Schillinglaw in Liverpool, always wanted to answer this research question that, is this Bradman technique successful for, for batters among all, all, across all formats? And Tony had provided a number of opinionated books, and um, which was not always anecdotal evidence, but he written a few books on, on Bradman. 
And then Tim asked me in 2013, well, when you're done with your masters, come speak to me because I have an interesting project that we could, that we could do because I know you love cricket. And I went to him and speak to him and he told me what this was about. And I said, prof, I'm in, I'm there. So we started this PhD and to, to sum up the work that we've done in the last six years or so is that the lateral batting backlift technique that we have theorized, which was otherwise known as a Bradman technique, but not exactly like Bradman, but a backlift that is directed towards second slip or beyond, or more importantly, with an open face of the bat towards the offside, has been shown to be a successful contributing factor for batsmen at all levels. We're not saying that it's a determinant because we have to take into account the other factors in cricket that also play a role in terms of success. But what we did find is that the backlift, what type of backlift a batsman portrays was a contributing factor to their success. We also realized that we can't really say it's the Bradman's technique because Bradman was unique in his own right. And every batsman that followed suit or even before Bradman had unique attributes to why they were successful. So we haven't regarded it as a Bradman technique. We applaud and we recognize Bradman for his inspiration towards this uh, study. But it's now been known as the lateral batting backlift technique or in short LBBT. And thereafter, we, we, were, we were curious to know, then how can we coach kids to develop this technique as they go on and, and representing cricket at different levels of cricket ability? And so what we had done is we had designed a coaching cricket bat, which has been published in 2016 in the British Medical Journal, to see if a, no, a novel coaching cricket bat can be used to enhance not just the performance, but the backlift of young cricketers. And our studies showed that it can. We now need to do further studies on larger sample numbers and uh, to see what the more long-term effects of training bat is because that paper, the findings weren't conclusive yet, but it did show promising findings that the coaching cricket bat can be used to, to enhance uh, the, the performance of the technique and the, and the backlift of, coach, of, of, of young cricketers. So at this stage where we are right now is we still furthering on the work within, within uh, cricket batting. We're not just focusing on the backlift now. The question now is to see what, does, what effect does the backlift have on the other components of the batting technique? the grip, the stance, the downswing, the follow-through, etc. I have a few students that I'm supervising at the moment at the University of Johannesburg where we also now want to look at human cricketers. Is there any difference in the backlift that human cricketers adopt? Uh, I was supposed to go to India later this year, but with COVID-19, it has been cancelled. We want to know if the brain has any anticipatory effects on the different types of backlifts that a batsman would do. And how we were going to measure that was to um, give the... Uh, EMG um, and attach it to, to, to the batsman's head. And at the same time, they will be able to bat and we will provide a biomechanical anal analysis and a, um, an ECG at the same time on the head to see what the brain patterns were on the batsman to see the timing and uh, the temporal constraints that are involved with batsmen right now with the backlift. So that's where the PhD has been. It has been a very exciting journey, but I'm thankful that although my PhD is done, the journey of this research has not done and it's still carrying on. Excellent. I, I'm not sure why it feels like it was just yesterday, but yeah, time, time has flown. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I guess because it seems like it was yeah, just yesterday. But it's, it's, it's quite interesting because I'm also quite interested. I mean, I've been reading a bit of, a bit of research, obviously having done some research and created myself and been involved um, with some of the team on the effects of you know, the eyes and, 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 and anticipation. You know, and, and I know in Australia they've done some work on you know blinding the batsman and anticipating the ball and and, and, and things like that. And so, 
yeah, we were interested to see if there's some kind of correlation with that with regards to backlift biomechanics, muscle, muscle memory, you know, those kind of things. And for our listeners out there, you know, that's not too sure about what backlift is talking about. This picture, Steve Smith, Brian Lara. I mean, I can go on about some of the so yeah, maybe maybe it is, you know. I mean, just mentioning that some of those, you know, um, those names, but we'll be waiting to see what what comes out of it. So lastly, uh, I, in, I, yes, yeah. Uh, sorry, interestingly, there, there is a paper that was done by Mann et al., David Mann, and he looks at optometry and, and cricket batting, and they published a paper in 2016, 2017 on ocular dominance among batting, among batsmen. And what they found that depending on what the, the eye strength is between the right and the left eye will affect the way the batsman is actually positioned at the crease. So, for example, if someone is right-handed and if they're more dominant in the left eye, they'll just give half a look. But if they're more dominant in the right eye, they look completely. And because of we, we know it starts at the head. And when their head moves over, their whole body shifts over and they're more at risk of getting stick behind. And it's the same thing with the left-handed player. So that was a very interesting paper that was published by Mann et al. And um, it was on ocular dominance in, in cricket players. So certainly there's a lot of um, contributing factors and confounding variables associated with cricket batting. And, um, and it's, it's so interesting to, 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 to read about it. Excellent, excellent. So, so, so lastly, um, and I don't want to keep you too long, um, you know, given the, the, the COVID-19 you know, pandemic and, and, and coming from a, an exercise and health background, you know, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on the way forward? Or let, let's start maybe currently on, on what's, what, what we're currently experiencing. I, I do know that on your blogs and on your website, you've you know, posted a few, um, uh, you know, a few thoughts. Um, so maybe if you you know give us your thoughts on the, the current pandemic and maybe where, where do you see the what what does the future hold? Sure. So I think from an epidemiological perspective, it's it's a bit of a concern. We're seeing cases surge. Uh, we're not closer to flattening this 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 virus at any time point. We're still on the peak. It's still rising. In America, it's it's rising profusely. Yes, they're doing a lot more tests. In South Africa, we're going to notice the peak heating really soon. So it's it's a real concern. But from a health perspective. If someone who has a comorbidity, especially in, from a metabolical health perspective, they are more at risk of developing severe cases of this disease or unfortunately even at risk of, of dying. So we see that the mortality of this disease more at risk with those who have metabolic health issues, more commonly known as type 2 diabetes, blood pressure, or obesity. So that is something that people need to take into account, that it's not just by strengthening your immunity with exercise that's going to help you get over the, this disease, there's a lot of, the pathophysiology on this disease is still limited. There's still more information that we need to know on this disease. But we know that exercise can certainly help your immunity. But even more so, nutrition is even more important when it comes to this, because if someone has been contracted with this virus or this disease, and if their nutrition is not up to a point, then they're not gonna be in a position to battle this disease as effectively as they would like it to be. And as we see it with those who have been having these metabolic health issues for years, for many years, they now either really battling with recovering from this virus, or we have seen them unfortunately die. And a vast majority of those who have died, I mean, 1.4 million cases who, who have died, sorry, not 1.4, 292,000 people who have died, a vast majority of those are either elderly or have had at least one or two comorbidities. And one or two of those comorbidities is not just AIDS or TB, it's mainly metabolic health. It's obesity, type two diabetes, and high blood pressure. So that's my sentiments on this disease right now. And um, 
Interestingly, I'm working on another uh, paper right now, Donovan, where I've derived a mathematical model to guide the reopening of the economy because there's so much emphasis on total number of cases and deaths, but hardly anyone is talking about recoveries. And so this mathematical model focuses on recoveries. And what I do is I give this equation and I also give the different norms. So if we had a specific norm, it guides the risk criteria in terms of where you can open the country and when, when, whether you should still be in lockdown or still an, under a number of restrictions. But I think from a health perspective, that is certainly something that we need to take into account, that what we eat and how we exercise our lifestyle and our daily activities of daily living is certainly a key determinant when it comes to this disease if you do get infected. Excellent. Thank you, Habib, for, for, for your time. And I'm sure our listeners um, enjoyed that. Um, stay tuned to, um, without divulging too much, because there's still some, some work in the background that's going on. So, um, you know, Habib will be featuring much more on, um, on ExaSmart on, on, on various platforms and, 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 and aspects. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Donovan. It was great to be here. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much.